Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with a best-selling author and award-winning podcaster who's devoted most of his adult life to helping people achieve a state of higher performance, Dave Asprey. Dave is the founder of Bulletproof and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Bulletproof Diet, Headstrong, and the recently released book, Game Changers, What Leaders, Innovators, and Mavericks Do to Win at Life. He is a Silicon Valley investor and technology entrepreneur who spent two decades and over a million dollars to hack his own biology. He's also the host of one of the world's top podcasts in Bulletproof Radio. Through his work, Dave provides information, techniques, and keys to taking control of and improving your biochemistry, your body, and your mind. So they work in unison, help you execute at levels far beyond what you'd expect without burning out, getting sick, or allowing stress to control your decisions. And on that note, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. Uh, You guys were already kind of getting into it before we started recording. And I'd imagine that many of the people who listen to this podcast are familiar with Bulletproof, either through the podcast or even Bulletproof Coffee, something like that, one of your products. But to give a bit more personal background and frame this conversation, what led to your interest in conducting this series of experiments on yourself? I used to weigh 300 pounds and I weigh probably about 210 and I'm 10.1% body fat now without being hungry. I used to be hypoglybitchy much of the time. (laughs) 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 And I had like a lot of emotional variability and a lot of anxiety I didn't understand was anxiety in my 20s. And I struggled a lot, even though I was very successful in my career in Silicon Valley. It was done through pain and running away from pain versus doing something that was a little bit more pleasurable and easy. And I just got tired of having brain fog. Mm. They diagnosed me with arthritis when I was 14 in my knees. And I had most of the diseases of aging before I was 30, high risk of stroke and Mm. heart attack, prediabetes, Mm. uh, even things like fibromyalgia. And I'm just like, doctors can't help me. So I said, the most important investment I can make is in myself. And I went down the path of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes that I didn't have, on making my biology just get back to normal. And then I realized, hey, you can go beyond that. How can you possibly spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on your own biology unless you're at end-of-stage life care at an ICU at Harvard for a year? Mm. You know, it's not as hard as you might think, especially over the course of (laughs) a couple of years. In fact, there's a lot of people with toxic mold exposure, which is actually part of what had happened to me, or people with mercury or Lyme disease, and a lot of the things that that are are well-established in functional medicine, but are still somehow not always recognized in the 1970s medical system that we live in. And people like that quite often go bankrupt. I'm just saying, like, I feel Mm. like I've been poisoned. My brain doesn't work. I can't get out of bed, but I go to the doctor and they say everything's fine. And this is, this is what's scary. When people hit whatever starts to take them out at end of life, <laughs> which mm. is right now, there's four big killers that, that are the subject of my, my next book. And it's Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart disease or cardiovascular, things like that, and cancer. And usually before then, there's this period of zombie, like where you just can't make decisions, you're too tired, you don't get out of bed, you put the keys in the refrigerator whatever is going on there. And it's just such a slow decline that you don't really see it. I just got Mm -hmm. to experience that when I was 26, 27. And I was so fortunate. I made $6 million when I was 26 at the company that held Google's first servers. I lost it when I was 28, but there was a time there. I'm like, okay, every night I'm going to study 
what's going on in my biology? Because my doctor can't help me. He tells me to try to lose weight. I'm like, you think I haven't? And just had no clue what was going on with me and and clearly thought I was lying. So I said, all right, I'm just going to study this. And then I'll just order $1,000 worth of this. I'll go see this specialist. I'll inject radioactive sugar in my arm and look at what's going on inside my brain. And I'll uh, do very expensive lab testing. And then I'll just go try it. And I've been taking 100 plus supplements a month for 20 years now. And Mm. it works, but it, it also has been expensive. And part of my goal is to say, I shouldn't have had to do that. The way we've been practicing medicine, our attention to becoming better human beings, including using medical techniques, is missing from medicine. And that it's our birthright to feel good and have a brain that works and have this resilient amount of energy. It's terrifying to feel like if, if you got in your car and you push the accelerator all the way down and the car is going slower and slower and mm, it, you can yeah. push harder, but nothing happens. Yeah. That was me yeah. throughout my late teens and 20s. And now I, I kind of feel like I'm a high performance vehicle and there's always <laughs> more throttle if I need it. Mm-hmm. But the skill set to do that, the knowledge, it took a lot of self-experimenting and a lot of working with the world's best people on it and yeah. inventing stuff. And you had an enormous opportunity to do that. You actually own and operate a biohacking lab in Vancouver that I was enjoyed watching a short video on. It's filled with a wide variety of these interesting and powerful and often, I would imagine, extremely expensive machines. They yeah. look and like they come from the set of Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool, Cryo right? chambers and other, yeah, very, very cool devices. And you yourself, as you're saying just there, you had all this opportunity in your 20s to experiment with this wide variety of techniques. And through your own trial and error, we're able to really kind of determine what worked for you and what didn't. So what's a biohacking technique that you found in your own life that's created a a really meaningful difference for you that you think is realistically accessible to all people? I'm happy you asked. There's two books that I've written that that go into a lot of these. And part of my goal Mm -hmm. is, look, I am playing at the very cutting edge of the field because someone has to do it. And it's sort of mm-hmm. like mobile phones 25 years ago. For those old enough to remember that, if you saw an investment banker with a mobile phone that filled up the whole trunk of his car, it was $25 mm-hmm. a minute and he's driving down the freeway and you're like, who does that guy think he is? Right? And now they're a dollar a month in Africa. And it, it's, yeah. it's profound how much that's come down. The anti-aging technologies, the human performance technologies that I'm talking about now are coming down in cost. Mm. But the first thing we have to do is get over this scientific religion that's blocking a lot of this. And the scientific religious thinking goes like this. That can't happen, therefore it didn't. It's a logical fallacy. But 20 years ago, I started using a high-powered infrared light on my brain that cost about 200 bucks 20 years ago. So now this is probably a $20 item. And Mm. now we know 20 years later, we have all these studies that it affects blood flow in the brain. When I started using it, there was Mm. one study and it was made by a guy in his garage who was sending them out to, through a little Yahoo group back when Yahoo Groups was a thing. And <laughs> this thing completely changed blood flow in my brain. It worked. It was so tangible. And, it, and when I used it for too long over the language processing part of my brain, I spoke in garbled sentences for three hours that scared the crap out of me. I'm pretty sure that wasn't placebo, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that said, when I talk about that, people would say, that's quackery. That's, you know, light can't do that. And so we have this hubris that says, we know how everything works. Our existing models are all we're ever going to know. Therefore, any new observation, you know, the first step of the scientific method, any new observation that doesn't match our models 
is is to be ignored. And the people who make those observations are crazy. So Dave, I want to get back to Forrest's question in a second about what's a sort of oh, yeah. top biohack <laughs> that people can can do on their own without... I got a free one for you. All right. So, so first off, all of these are going to be way more affordable than they are now. That was my big point. And uh, so part of this, I'm just going to show you that it works. And an example there is cryotherapy. I've mm-hmm. got a $100,000 thing that essentially chills air down to 270 degrees below zero. You stand in it for mm-hmm. three minutes and it triggers your body to change something called cardiolipin in your cell membranes. And it makes you burn hundreds more calories, shed fat, get better looking skin and heal injuries faster. A lot of pro athletes use it. So I have one of mm-hmm. these at home and one of these at Beverly Hills, at the Beverly Hilton, where there's an upgrade labs in Santa Monica. But at home, and I write about this in my books, here's what you do to get a similar effect. At the end of your nice hot shower, you have the cold water hit you on the forehead and upper chest. Now, the first day you'll do this, you'll last about eight seconds and then you'll swear and say, Dave Asprey is a total jerk. Uh, I'm done with my. I was imagining coffee. that already yeah. myself. <laughs> like I'm done with my bulletproof coffee. I, yeah, yeah, this is crazy stuff. The coffee tastes good, but I don't know about this cold shower. <laughs> so, but if you stick with it, the next day you're going to go about twenty, maybe thirty seconds before you just can't stand it, and mm-hmm. the third day you're going to go a whole minute, and at the end of the minute you say, "I feel amazing," and it might, mm. might be sometimes it's the fourth day, so it's three days of pain, but. What's going on there is studies show now that after three days of exposure every day, even just for 30 seconds to a minute, that your cell membranes change and they become higher performing. And the cells that can't make enough heat, actually they're subcellular components called mitochondria, little power plants. If they can't make enough heat quickly, they get out of dodge. They die and get replaced by younger ones. So it mm-hmm. costs you less than taking a hot shower because you don't have to heat the water at the end. And it just costs you in a little bit of pain for three days. After that, I promise you, your skin will look better, but you'll have more energy all day long. A little bit ago, you had a little micro rant there, which I fully affirmed about the dogmatism that sometimes one can encounter in the guise of science that's profoundly unscientific, that is defensive and deflective about new evidence and falls into the fallacy of thinking that the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. You know that saying. Yep. So here you are yourself, and we can look over the course of history backwards. The progress of innovation is kind of a frontier, I think about. So you're on the frontier. Here's the question, though. How do we capture the gains of people who are innovating and at the cutting edge, while at the same time avoiding some of the pitfalls? that have been well-known as, as well, of quackery and exploitation and a kind of overestimate of the efficacy of something because it really worked for one person, but it's not that generalizable to lots of people. In other words, what have you seen there? You're right there on the frontier. You clearly have a good heart. I really mean that. How do you avoid the pitfalls and how do you tell people themselves to avoid the pitfalls? There are a couple things uh, that make it easier. Where the, the cutting edge innovation happens is where you have people who figured out something and they have clinical evidence. And there's seven different kinds of evidence out there. But the most mm-hmm. important kind of evidence, far more important than double blind clinical trials or epidemiological evidence, is clinical evidence. And that's when a physician says, when I see these things 
And I do these things for these reasons, whether the reasons are true or not, doesn't really matter. But when I see these people, I do these things, I get these results most of the time. And if not, there's an explanation. That's where innovation actually happens. And we put kind of a block on innovation in human biology because right now, if you're treating a patient and you're saying, well, what the standard of care, which is what I'm supposed to do that the insurance companies told me to do, it didn't work for this patient. So either the patient's crazy or I got to try something else. But when you try something else, your medical license may be at risk because you used a drug that wasn't, it wasn't approved for the use that you used it for, even though you know there's a mechanism and it might work. So there's mm-hmm. this idea of risk reward that has been lost. And the way you deal with this, what if I'm doing something that doesn't work? You look at plausible mechanisms. And since today, we know more about how DNA works than ever before. We know more about mitochondrial biology. And we have the ability to collect ridiculous amounts of data. So I can see myself and I can get lab data that is so amazing. So when I was developing the Bulletproof Diet, half a million copies sold, millions of people have done it and have lost, I don't know how much weight, but huge amounts. And with this, I said, you know, there's evidence that butter is not bad for you. In fact, there's quite a lot of evidence for it. And Mm -hmm. there's an ancient practice of putting yak butter in tea (laughs) in Tibet that I came across that made me feel really different. So I said, all right, is this repeatable? And I tested it with enough people and said, yeah, this is repeatable. It totally works. And I, I went down the path. But the whole time, there's a voice in the back of my head going, well, what if you know, what if I'm wrong? What if all these hundreds of studies Mm. about the beneficial things of butter, what if they're not wrong? Because I was imprinted in the 70s with this idea that anything but squeeze margarine will kill you. Sure, yeah. yeah. And so what did I do? I looked at my lab results, right? It is painfully easy and cheap now to say, I'm going to try something Mm. that's low risk for three Mm -hmm. months or six months and see whether it worked. Yeah, probably three things that I heard in what you said there that I just want to underline. The first is, if the costs of an intervention are low, then it's safer to try than an intervention whose costs are potentially high. As you probably know, the third leading cause of death in America is medical error, mainly <laughs> through yeah, prescription meds, complications, and so forth, often at end of life. And I'm not speaking against prescription meds. I'm just pointing out that when we consider whether to do something, the cost-benefit equation uh, changes when the cost of an intervention, such as taking a cold shower for 10 seconds is pretty low. The risk is low. Yeah. The second thing you said is that if there's an underlying mechanism of action that's plausible, then it could be safer to try. And the third thing I would push in here based on things I've seen, because I live in this world of holistic health as well. I overlap it. Don't let your holistic health interventions crowd out sensible, conventional approaches. And... I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. So I just kind of wanted to offer those three things. Yeah, and there's a lot of evidence, as you're speaking to here, Dave, that a lot of the kind of beliefs that we were imprinted with relatively early on, whether that was in our own childhoods or, I mean, early on from a cultural standpoint, by early research that was done, have been found to be kind of fundamentally incorrect on a lot of different levels. And new research is constantly challenging those assumptions that we have about things. And as you've gone through this process, you've accrued a large library of advice that has come to you through a variety of different forms from various very, very smart people. And on your podcast, you actually ask everyone the same question. You ask them, if somebody came to you tomorrow and wanted to perform better as a human being, 
what are the three most important pieces of advice that you would give them? Um, so I think it's appropriate here to kind of turn that question on you and ask you the same one. It was really fun to be able to ask that question of you know, 500 people, actually yeah. almost 600 now. It's an incredible data set, really. Yeah, and, and to write Game Changers, my last book, based on the mm-hmm. statistical analysis of those answers. And part of me is saying, well, I could go through the, the word cloud and tell you the statistical likelihood of it working for you. And the number one thing would be eat the right stuff for your biology. Mm. And I think that's really good advice. It is vanishingly difficult to have resilience, willpower, uh, energy to change and improve yourself if you're eating stuff that doesn't work for you. Even if 1970s science says it's going to work, you could be eating only squeezed margarine, vegetable oil, and kale. Hey, it's <laughs> vegan, right? You're probably not going to perform like a rock star. You're probably not going to mm. wake up in the morning full of energy and you're probably not going to get a good night's sleep. And even if you desperately want to be a better human being and you're totally willing to do the work and you're going to go to a Tony Robbins seminar, you can do all that stuff, you're just too damn tired and your brain cannot make new neurons if you don't do that right. So high performers understand, I must eat what's right for me. And what's right for me may not be the same as what's right for my spouse or my best friend, mm-hmm. but there's basic rules for that. And that was my first big book was on what are the rules? Mm-hmm. And one of them is, don't eat damaged fats. So don't eat fried stuff and things like that. So you got to eat for your biology. Otherwise, you don't have energy and you don't have self-repair. The second thing, and my answer is kind of varied depending on the day, but uh, today I would talk about the power of, uh, of embracing failure. Mm-hmm. And so many people unconsciously avoid the risk of failure. And this is the, the source of procrastination this is the source of not, not deciding I'm going to do something really big. Instead, I'm going to play small. And all of the, the mistakes that I've made, especially in my career when I was younger, were really around fear. But I didn't mm. see it as such at the time because you know, there, there's the blind spot. And the corollary to that rule, if I can sort of fit it in there, is just understanding that you have a separate consciousness inside of your body that is not you that is the source of that fear. It, it's your ego. Mm-hmm. It, it's the thing that's driven from bacteria-level algorithms that emerges into your consciousness. And it's basically a desire to run away from, kill or hide from scary things, eat everything, and have sex with everything else. Pretty much that's what bacteria do to stay alive, and that's all of your ego behaviors in a nutshell. So just understand, you'll have those urges, but they're coming from your meat. They are not coming from you. And that is where that fear comes from. And that's mm. where that fear of failure comes from. And the, mm. the final thing there is something that I do at the Neuroscience Institute that I started that does brain training for execs and has been a big part of my, my personal development is the power of gratitude. And mm-hmm. almost any personal development person worth their salt today will talk about, you got to do gratitude. It's really good. But Understanding that gratitude is a skill, it's a neurological state that can be measured on an EEG, and it's something that gets stronger as you use it. And the reason that gratitude is important is it's step one of forgiveness. And in order to truly forgive something, then you've got to learn to be grateful for it first. And forgiveness is not about telling someone that you forgive them, it's about you not carrying a grudge that's costing you human performance. And that's why gratitude is so important. And it's something that I do. I have a gratitude practice with my two young kids and my wife. And it's just 
something you do like brushing your teeth? There's a lot in that, Dave. You, in your work, have focused a lot on performance, and you use that word again and again. Yet in your top three suggestions for people, two out of three had to do with gratitude, forgiveness, and being more relaxed about and less anxious about failure, very psychological interventions. And so I just kind of wonder what you think are some of the pitfalls in people who I've seen a lot in, you know, I live in the Bay Area, high-powered, high-pressured, upper-middle-class, so forth, professionals a lot. What are the pitfalls in chasing performance rather than well-being? In other words, implicit in what you're saying is well-being, and yet I've seen people whose focus on performance, even a well-intended focus on performance, can crowd out well-being. The things that I talk about on the Bulletproof blog, on Bulletproof Radio, and even the philosophy that underlies the, the products I create, is that I wanted to write and, and speak in a way that I would have been able to hear when I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Because... If this knowledge had existed, and it would have been in a, a way that I could have absorbed through my 20-year-old ego. Yeah, for sure. It would have saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars and an incredible amount of suffering. And what no one had mm. ever told me was that, hey, the reason you're performing so poorly is that you're running around with the brakes and the accelerator both pressed down all the time, and you don't know your foot's on the brake. Mm. And that's the psychology side of things. That said, if you don't have the right gas in the tank of your car and you're putting diesel in there and you should be putting in high-performance gasoline, well, no wonder, even if you took your foot off the brake, you'd barely move. Mm -hmm. And it's that combination of things. And so the reason I focus on performance is that I believe that there's really only three drivers for what people really, really want. And one of them is... Uh, People want to be good at what they do. There's an inherent satisfaction, even if all you're doing is cleaning the bathroom. There's an inherent satisfaction with going, wow, I did a good job and the bathroom's actually clean versus I did a Mm half-assed job and it's kind of clean, right? It it feels good. We don't want to do more work to do that, but we would like excellence in what we do, even if it's a mundane task. So we want to be good, right? And then the second thing we want to do is we want to be happy. Right? Regardless of how much money or power or fame or whatever, happiness is a core thing that we really, really want. And the third thing we want to do is we want to live forever because dying sucks. And if you say, I don't want to live forever, when you're 99, you're going to live to 100. When you're 100, you want to live to 101. No one actually wants to die. So if you look at the world through the lens of those three things, a performance is one of the big things. And I can tell you, no one I've ever known has woken up in the morning and the first thought on their mind is, today, I hope I have well-being. It's simply not enough. Today, I want to kick ass. Today, I want to be happy. Today, I want to not die. Those are always higher on my hierarchy than well-being. And that's why I talk about those. Mm. But don't you equate happiness to well-being? Are you using the words differently here? It's a tough question. Perhaps. A lot of times, well-being has this, this notion of health in it. And having had a chronic illness that I don't have anymore and having grown mm. up with that, I can tell you only the people who the people who wake up and go, today, I just want to be healthy, which is more correlated to well-being. Those are the people who are really sick. And mm. if you're not really sick, I'm just going to be a little bit crass here, Rick. If you're 24, 25 years old, you know what's higher yeah. on your list than, than, than well-being? It's getting, it's getting laid. Okay, today I really want to meet an attractive mate and I really want to go on a date and I want to spend time with my friends and I'm going to go out and I want to be something. 
well-being is never going to be above that on your list. I'm sorry. Yeah, I basically agree that. <laughs> well, no, I, but see, I, I want to push on this because getting laid is a means to the end of well-being. In other words, distinct from performing mm. at work, right? I think we also need to separate mental interventions from physical interventions yeah. and performance outcomes from quality of life outcomes. In other words, how you experience. And I think they're, they're inherently independent of each other. Oh, and I don't think so. so. But they're distinct is what I mean. They intertwine, they interrelate. There's a causative thing there. like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm just trying to get at that. I think for many people, one of the real outcomes of what you're describing is the feeling of vitality, mm-hmm. the feeling of being fearless with regard to failure, you know, the feeling of not being burdened by the things that you haven't yet forgiven, including what you haven't yet forgiven in yourself. Yeah. I mean, to me, those are just, those are outcome measures that are really meaningful, distinct from being you know, some increment more effective in your job or being able to wring some increment of return on investment out of, you know, what you're doing. I just think both of those are values for people and quality of life. I've just seen at the end of the day is a deep value for many people, including many younger people these days too. I think that, that you're, you're saying something really accurate there, Rick, which is that whether you want to call it well-being or happiness, what I found in the data from, from Game Changers, uh, when I interviewed all those like people who've done big things in the world, there were really three big buckets that all of these behaviors fell into. And these people did stuff to be smarter. They wanted to continuously improve their cognitive and thinking and creative skills. And they, so they were on this continuous improvement path. They wanted to do things faster. So they didn't waste a lot of time. They figured out how to get where they wanted to go. And then they wanted to be happier. And what the data showed and and what these interviews showed was that people who learned how to be happy performed really well at whatever their chosen field was. And performance isn't measured in dollars or even accolades. I'm just measuring this in impact. Like, did you change something meaningfully? And by the way, none of these people ever said money, wealth, power, or fame was their three most important things. Not even one person, Mm. which Mm -hmm. is really cool. And... So what it, comes, what it turns down to is that happiness is a, a lubricant for changing the game or for being successful. But what I had believed when I had $6 million, when I was 26, I literally turned to a friend at the same company where we all made too much money and said, you know, I'll be happy when I have $10 million. And, it, and, uh-huh. and you get mm-hmm. that, that ridiculous association of achievement with happiness. And, yeah. and that's the problem when you're younger, at least when I was younger, when I meet the right girl, I'll be happy. When I get the right career, the right raise, I'll be happy. You know, when I go on this trip, I'll be happy. None of that was actually a true story. Right. And so when when you can figure out how to turn on that happiness, regardless of these external factors, the external factors become much easier. Mm -hmm. And that was the real learning for me that I wanted to bring out in the book. And I wish someone had explained that to me when I was 20, because I would have focused more on what you're calling well-being or what you could also call happiness or whatever that ephemeral thing is where like I'm comfortable in my Mm -hmm. own skin. Because when you totally, do that, yeah. you can just explode as an entrepreneur, an artist, a teacher, you know, what, whatever your mission in the world is, you've got to have that first. Otherwise, even if you're showing up and you're on stage and inside there's a little voice that's like screaming, people will pick that up and they'll know it. And you mm-hmm. don't show up with authenticity and integrity and you can say the right words, but you don't emote the right feelings. And then you don't connect with people and then you walk away going, I'm such a fraud. And the little voice in your head gets mean and all that. Uh, the voice in my head shut the hell up after enough neurofeedback. And so I, I don't deal with that one mm-hmm. anymore. To return to the book Game Changers, 
The format of it in general, I think is really great. You broke all of that advice that you were given over time on your podcast down into kind of 46 key laws. And each law kind of contains a section of actionable items for the reader and some supplemental information, including listening and reading material, which is actually not tremendously dissimilar to how Rick has structured his books in the past. Mm -hmm. And I found that overlap just very interesting. I think the structure is excellent. In those laws, you referred to things that you found that weren't there. So was, I'm just wondering, is there anything that really leapt off the page that really surprised you when you did your kind of data analysis of it? There was definitely the, the money, wealth, and, and fame mm-hmm. and power that no one was seeking those things. Yeah, just not there. Yeah, that, at least if they were seeking them, it wasn't a primary motivator. They were generally a side effect. But probably the, the things that are in the book that were most risky to talk about, just keep in mind, I'm CEO mm-hmm. of a sizable company. You know, we've raised $16 mm-hmm. million dollars in venture capital. I'm a public figure, et cetera, et cetera. And public figures generally don't talk about what we do in the bedroom. And mm-hmm. sex has this, this dual nature where it's both sacred and profane, right? It's, it, people leave their bodies, they have spiritual experiences in the bedroom, but it's also sticky, Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about it and people usually won't go there on the air. And I've interviewed a couple of professional dominatrixes or sex therapist experts to get into like the, if we don't reproduce the species, it's the end of the world from a cellular perspective. So we will biologically want to reproduce the species. And it's a huge source of energy and happiness and connectedness and oxytocin and, just it's a fundamental part of being human. And it's one that isn't mm-hmm. in most books, especially for high performance humans. Yet I've found in my own life that following a Taoist practices around that have, has given me a huge boost in energy and helped my marriage and just been a generally good thing. So I'm like, I'm going to write about that. And I'm going to find a few people to talk about it, even if it's off the record. So what was surprising there is when you go there, how happy people are to talk about it in a respectful, non-lecherous, gross way. And Maria Shriver interviewed me on her show, Agents of Change. And I interviewed her on, on Bulletproof Radio before that. And I, I was talking about that. Well, you know, this sex matters. And it's actually different rules for men and women in terms of how it's going to affect your brains and your, your hormones and your happiness. And I said, but people don't like to talk about sex because it's icky. And, and she kind of got offended. She goes, you think sex is icky? And I'm like, well, no, I also think it's fantastic, but it's that, it's that dual nature that makes us mm-hmm. at any age really just less likely to just say, you know what, this matters to me in a way that is more than just getting some and, and that it, it has a, a level of motivational ability that is uh, frankly just amazing. And the first guy to talk about that was Napoleon Hill. So I, I think that's something, there's three laws in the book that are specific to here's what sex is going to do to you as a human being beyond just having a good time. Yeah, no, I think that that's great. And just as it's a contributor for a lot of positive resources that you're referring to there, it can also be an enormous source of shame for people. And I think that as you're doing in in the book, there's a real demystification process around something like that. And I think that that can be very, very valuable to just increase the level of comfort that people have with interacting with, as you were saying there, an often sticky subject. So I just think that that kind of on its own is a very kind of valuable service. A lot of people in their 20s and 30s, they're decoupling shame that they learned from their parents, from society. And frankly, there's a lot of trauma that comes. I mean, we all come into the world kind of in a, 
in a, the same parts of <laughs> same parts of the body that are involved in reproduction, as you would expect, right? And so there's a lot of really weird, low-level feelings that, that come out from that. And so a lot of times, you know, what people are exploring their relationships or exploring in their, their sexual practice and all that stuff, they're working on real old feelings that have to come out until you just get past your shame. And mm-hmm. when I interview both Esther Perel, who was talking about the relationship dynamic that creates, and even that, that professional dominatrix, her thing was, it, look, I don't have sex with my clients. What I actually do is uh, I'm helping them release old feelings and there's a huge amount of catharsis. It's more like a, a therapeutic thing. And I'm not endorsing that people go out and, and do that sort of thing. I'm just saying if people are, are facing whatever, whatever the shame is, bottom line is you got to find what works for you in the bedroom. And if you try to deny that, you're probably not going to scratch whatever itch you have and it will continue mm-hmm. to be a pain point until you face whatever is behind it. And man, if that was common knowledge... We'd have a lot less shame in the world. The less shame we have, the more honest behavior we have, the nicer people are to each other. And generally, I'd like to have a shame-free world. That would be great. It's really interesting. You're known for focusing on the body. And what I'm hearing is a deep and long-standing interest in the mind. Obviously, the two go together. What I mean by that is that, in effect, we can make the movement or acknowledge the distinction between the first person and the third person perspective. So you're known a lot for the so-called third person perspective that takes the body as an objective material thing, process is very dynamic and how to optimize it. It's really great. Simultaneously though, a lot of what has driven you along the way that has struck me and is a lot of what you talk about is what it feels like to be you moment by moment by moment, what it actually is like in the interior. That's the first person perspective, the experience of being oneself over time. And I just want to call out, Dave, that to me, you're, you're really exceptional in the degree to which the ways in which you're actually speaking about that, talking about fears of failure, moving beyond shame, giving yourself a sense of hope and possibility in life, that there are things you can do to make things better. And paying attention to that domain, you know, it really stands out for oh, me thank you. when I'm listening to you here. A big part of what I do is this 40 years of Zen neuroscience facility. I have mm. two neuroscientists mm-hmm. and a two and a half million dollar facility and custom hardware and software for putting on the brain. And what I've learned there is if I have a, a client who's there for five days, 10 hours a day with all sorts of equipment on their head, they cannot do the work and make the progress unless I have an executive chef on site and unless I'm giving mm. them the right supplements to make their mitochondria work better to increase neurogenesis. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the line between the body and mind for me is so vague where most of our unconscious behaviors are emergent in a distributed network across the cells in our body that aren't even in our brain and they roll up into the brain and create our unconscious behaviors. And some of those are brain-based, many are body-based, but we don't know it. And then we finally filter a bunch of that stuff out. And then we, half a second later, we have a thought about it. But it's that network. If that network is broken, you simply don't interface with reality very well. And you don't make Mm -hmm. energy. And the worst thing I had was, you know, I'm in my 20s and it's the end of the day and I am so exhausted, but I want to do something to be a better human being. Like I want to learn something. Mm. And I just don't have what it takes to pick one foot up and put it in front of the other with consciousness and effort and intention. And uh, I imagine that's uh, what it feels like as you get 
on in years and systems in the body start breaking down because I had systems in my body breaking down. I don't want to go back to that. And that's what taught me that this, this incredible synergy between your meat and your mind. And mm-hmm. so I, I've found it increasingly difficult to break them apart from each other in the way I think of it. Yeah, they clearly intertwine and causes flow in both directions. That's a really important point. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I kind of have a last question here. We've spoken a lot about bodies and individual experiences, the mind level of subjectivity, the stream of consciousness. What about social hacking? Have you thought much about interpersonal hacking and <laughs> come up with uh, your top one, two, or three items there that sure. really support long-term health of relationships? Well, I have. And the reason I'm laughing is I grew up in a family where my grandmother's a nuclear engineer, grandfather's a PhD chemist, all mm. hardcore rational people who test on the Asperger's scale. Yeah. And I would have also until I made the changes in my biology that I've made. So I grew up with very little social awareness. Mm. And what I did early in my career when someone at work, a woman named Carla, sat me down and said, hey, here's how it actually works. I'm like, holy crap, I had no idea any of this mattered. I thought it was just a bunch of... <laughs> so now I, it's, it's really natural for me. But what came out from Game Changers was that the quality of your community directly impacts the quality of your relationships. And mm-hmm. when Esther Perel went out and did her analysis and her work with all these couples, she found that you know, quote, non-traditional couples, the biggest indicator whether they would succeed or not succeed was actually, did they have the support of their friends? And non-traditional today might mean, you know, you're polyamorous or you're gay or doing all sorts of of different things. However, non-traditional 30 years ago meant, oh my God, you're going to date someone of a different race? Like, do you know what's going to happen here? You're going to date someone five years older than you? Oh my God, you know, you're such a sinner. And like all this BS that, that we used to have, right? So what's going on now is whatever relationship you're in, you've got to have a community who's supportive of it in order to do that. And this is one of those, it's to, to deal with the shame, is to deal with having support and probably some stuff we don't even understand yet about why, why would it make sense that what's happening at home would be so intertwined with whether you've got that community around you. I don't think we know why, but we do know that that's a fact. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's wonderfully said. And to kind of finish up and more or less put a bow on our time together here, there is one other question that we tend to like to ask people towards the end of our conversations. And you've made sort of reference to it throughout this interview where you've talked about yourself in your mid-20s and going through this very rough period in your life. If you had the opportunity to go back to a younger version of yourself, whether that version in the 20s or even something before them, and really kind of tell that person one thing, what would that be? You know, especially in my my early 20s, it would be people actually want to help. You should take advantage of that. And I I've mm. probably because of the way the way I was born, I was born with a cord wrapped around my neck. So people who are born that way typically come into the world ready to fight and thinking that it's a threatening place until they do their work on that. But for whatever reason, I just did not grow up believing that people wanted to help. And the number of times that I turned down expertise from someone two or three times my age who had all that accumulated wisdom. So the corollary to that would be, 
take advantage of and listen to your elders. And I am who I am today because when I was in my mid-20s, I started running an anti-aging nonprofit group. And there's an 88-year-old guy who is, what, more than three times my age? He's dating a 36-year-old. <laughs> and, and not in an uncomfortable, you know, lecherous way, but he was just a young 88-year-old. And just had this zest for life and this energy and this wisdom. And you sit down and you're like, wow, this guy could save me 20 years of making mistakes if only I would listen. And I really did not get good at listening until I was in my mid-30s. But man, if I could have convinced myself to do that, mm. it would have been great. But if I tried to convince myself back then, I probably wouldn't have listened. Yeah, no, I think that that's kind of the haunting reality of a lot of these moments that we have of reflection, where you look back and you say, okay, if I could tell myself something when I was 23 or whatever it was, would I have been willing to take that advice? That's why the bulletproof language is the way it is. Uh, you know, to, to Rick's point, I'm mm. writing desperately to make it so that I would have read it when I was 20 and I would have taken action. Because the earlier you start doing these things, the more return on investment, because it compounds over the next 100 years mm -hmm. that a lot of people who are 20 are, are going to be living. And <laughs> so you might as well just get a little bit better. It's like the advice, you put 50 bucks in the account every month and you'll be a millionaire by the time you're 50. It's the same thing on mm -hmm. personal development. You don't have to do a lot. Just do a little bit every day or a little bit every month. The problem is that if you're getting bad advice or you're not doing it, you don't start till later and then you got to play catch up. Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful note for us to close here on. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We totally appreciate it, and I thought it was completely illuminating. It has been a great pleasure. And tremendously valuable to people. Thank you. Really, thank you. You're so welcome. It's been my pleasure. So to offer a quick recap, today we spoke with Dave Asprey of Bulletproof Radio. We covered a variety of topics related to his work around physical and mental hacking. Dave himself went through a prolonged and really quite expensive process of physical biohacking where he learned sort of what worked for him and what he was able to extrapolate out to other people. Thankfully, it's not necessary for all of us to go through such an elongated and potentially expensive process because the lessons from all of that research are things that we ourselves can learn from. He gave a number of pieces of advice related to optimizing physical biochemistry a recurring one was the importance of hacking your diet and really taking in the nutrients that you as an individual need in order to be successful throughout the day. It's all well and good to feel like you're going, 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 but if you don't have the gas in the tank that enables you to do so, it's very, very challenging to be a high performer. We went on from there to his new book, Game Changers, focusing on some of the specific lessons that he's learned in his many years of speaking with some of the peak performers in the world. The information in Game Changers is sorted into three categories, things that make you smarter, things that make you faster, and things that make you happier. And we spoke about examples from really all three over the course of the podcast. A point that Dave consistently returned to was the value of a form of metacognition, or being aware of the processes which are going on inside of your own mind. It's very, very easy for us to be hijacked by lower level biological and mental processes that get in the way of our ability to really perform at the highest level. One such example that he gave was related to underlying feelings of shame or attributions to other people of why they might be doing something, when it's really impossible for us to make those judgments as an external observer. And simply having an underlying awareness of the ways in which our body and mind might be kind of lying to us is an incredibly valuable practice. If you enjoyed this interview with Dave and would like to purchase his new book, Game Changers, I'll be including a link to that in the description of today's episode. 
Also, Dr. Rick Hansen's ongoing monthly meditation program is currently still open for registration. And you can use the code BEINGWELL to receive 10% off of that at checkout. I will also include a link to that in the description of today's episode. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dave Asprey. And until next time, thanks for listening.